Good morning. It's good to be with you. I'm not checking my Facebook page right now. Uh, we record our service in part for those who are uh, not able to be with us on any given Sunday. And we post those online if you're ever interested in hearing more um, from the preached word from this pulpit. So as I bring my phone up, I'm not checking Facebook or doing anything like that. I'm just getting ready to record. It's good to be with you this morning. Before we open God's word together, I wanted to just take, take a couple of minutes to say a few things. First of all, if you are the parent of a middle schooler or high schooler, or you are a middle schooler or a high schooler next fall, um, we have an opportunity to head to a camp that we've been doing for a number of years, though it looks different this year, um, for our middle schoolers and high school students. It's uh, the 17th of July. If you're in that category and you want more information, would you grab me after the service? I've got an email that I started like two weeks ago to send all of you parents, and it just hasn't gotten there yet. Um, so I uh, just wanted to say that as well. Um, also, I wanted to take an opportunity to say to you as a congregation, thank you um, for your support of our ministry on the campus of Kansas State. Um, uh, this congregation gives generously to us, and I know that many of you pray for us as we seek to reach out to students on campus and shepherd them through their college years. If you are, uh, would, would be interested in learning more about the work that we do, or for that matter, the work that the, Hardings, the Hardys and the Cassings do on the campus with crew, um, would you grab us, email us, text us, call us, whatever. We'd love to help you know how to pray for us in this work. We're in the middle of summer orientation, which means every day about 300 new students are coming to campus, um, learning about life at K-State. Parents are coming with them, so we're meeting parents and students every day in, the, in these three weeks, and would love your ongoing prayers for that work. This morning, we turn our attention um, to Psalm 2. So if you've got a Bible nearby, or uh, you, can, you see your neighbor's Bible and you're faster than them, grab it, or to open up your app to Psalm 2. During the summers at Manhattan Press, we've been in the custom of working through the Psalms together. We're not going in order or anything like that, but we're simply each Sunday picking a new Psalm to consider. The Psalms really cover the breadth of the human experience the breadth of what it is to know God in this world. They were written down as prayers and songs for the people of God to be read, to be studied, to be sung, to be prayed, to be considered in a repeated kind of fashion. So this morning, I simply want to turn our attention to Psalm 2. I'm going to read it out loud for us, and then I'm going to pray for us. Then we're going to talk about what it says, what it means, and what it means for us. Would you follow along with me now? Psalm 2, I'll read the entirety of the psalm. This is the word of the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Know therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is indeed the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we consider these words together. Father in heaven, I just admit to you I'm tired 
Um, but I'm enjoying the summer, and a lot of us may be in similar boats this morning, Father. It's that mixture of rest and fun and activity, but also of energy being spent and things going on. Father, we bring all of that to you this morning, not to complain, but to simply ask that you would meet us in whatever state we find ourselves this morning. We pray for those who may be with us this morning who are suffering in ways that we don't yet know, asking questions that we have not yet heard and and considered. Father, would your light shine into all of our lives? Would you send out your light and your truth that they would lead us to you this morning through your word? Take us to your holy place. Change us, we ask. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you're familiar with the old comic strip, if you know what a comic strip is, Calvin and Hobbes, it's about a little boy and his stuffed tiger and their imaginary adventures together. I think it's in the first collection of Calvin and Hobbes, there's a scene in which we find Calvin, this small boy, presumably in his parents' living room, diligently hammering nails into his mom's coffee table, just pounding away. Of course, in the next frame, his mother comes into the room, Calvin! The letters get really huge. What on earth are you doing? The next, the next panel, we see a puzzled Calvin standing, staring straight ahead with a little, just a little symbol above his head, not sure what to say next. And in the last panel, he turns to his mom and asks, is this a trick question? From Calvin's perspective, it's obvious what it is that he's doing. He's hammering nails into the coffee table. Mom, this isn't difficult. But from mom's perspective, What he's doing is illogical. It makes no sense, it's inappropriate, and it's destructive, and she wants to put an end to it. Psalm 2, the psalm we consider this morning, begins with that kind of question. The question it begins with at the very beginning of verse 1 is why? Why would the nations do what they're doing? Why would the peoples, the rulers of the peoples, do what it is they're doing? The writer sees the absurdity because he's, what, he, what he's asking is why would those with power and with wealth and with wealth and with influence and presumably with some extra measure of insight into the ways of the world, why would they dare to stand against the, the God of the universe? If you look at the end of verse 1, he even makes this editorial comment that the peoples plot in vain. They're dreaming, they're imagining, they're making plans that will turn out to be empty. Why on earth would anyone dare do this? The answer isn't clear right away, to some anyway, as we, as we consider these words together. But the stance in their minds is clear. If you look at verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves. They're taking their stand. And the rulers take counsel together. They're gathering together to make plans to work together to stand against the Lord and against his anointed. And their motivations are made clear in the next verse, in verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, what they're doing is they're raging, they're plotting for what in their minds is freedom. And the psalmist raises the question, why? You see, sometimes in our lives, we're the mom in my little story at the beginning. We're the mom looking at a dear friend living destructively 
looking at our metaphorical children in our lives and saying, what on earth are you doing? Do you not see the destruction that you're causing, the harm that you're causing yourself and others? But let's be honest. We're often the child as well. We're often the child doing something that we think is appropriate, wondering on earth why everyone is upset with our hammering, with our pounding, with the fun that we're having. The hint that we may be the child is the voices that we hear in our head, the, voice, the things that we tell ourselves. Because in those moments, the hint becomes, do you, do you hear the noisy, the confusing rage that is filling your minds? You're, what are you scheming about? What are you planning for? What are you dreaming about freedom? We often think we're the mom, but let's be honest, we're often the child who's raging and wondering why everyone is so upset. We rage from hurt that moves us from longing for justice and longing for a world that doesn't harm us to living in such a way that we're running for separation, that we're running to hide from anyone who might love us. We're running from the risk of relationship to protect ourselves. It's the rage of frustration whether it's something as small as driving to the office in the morning or dealing with people that you deal with every day that just drive you crazy, that, that, that rage of frustration that grows to resentment, to resent anyone and everyone who's kept you from reaching your potential on any given day. Do you know that rage? It may be loud, it may be noisy, it may be the kind of anger that boils up inside of you that says, get out of my way. And if you don't understand the tone of my voice, I will show you what I mean when I say get out of my way. Others of us, it's quieter. It's beneath the surface. It's hidden. But it's definitely there. Because you're plotting, you're manipulating, you're maneuvering to get what you think you need to strive after the freedom that you long for. And so you fight. And you imagine a world in your own life, providing what you want to give you this freedom. You long for tenure. You long to finish your bachelor's degree because then you'll have freedom, right? You long to be married. You long to have children. You long to be done with school once and for all, however long that may take. You long for the job. You long for the next job. You long for the promotion. You long for the house. You long for the car, thinking if I only had fill in the blank, then I would have freedom. I want to make the case this morning that that's the rage that the psalmist writes of for each of us. What he challenges us with, though, this morning, which may be uncomfortable for us, is that when we rage like that, when we plot, when we scheme, we're not just raging and plotting against the people in our lives. Because what he puts in front of us is ultimately... Our adversary is God himself. Consider, beginning in verse 4, the response of the Lord to this raging. We read at the beginning of verse 4, it says, He who sits in the heavens. The fact that Scripture speaks repeatedly of God, God being up in the heavens isn't so much a geographical kind of location as it is telling us God sees the world from above, from outside of our daily experience. He sees with eyes and he hears with ears 
that penetrates to our motives, that penetrates to the cause and effect and the consequences of the way that we live our lives over and over again. He sees things the way they truly are. And how does he respond in, these, in verses 4 to 6? He responds first with laughter. Now, look, this is not the surprised laughter of America's Funniest Home Videos that you watch on TV and think, what's going to happen when the, toddler throws the, when the dad throws the ball up in the air to his toddler who's got this giant three-foot-long bat? We know what's going to happen, but even if something surprising happens, that's not the laughter that God is experiencing here. We read in the second part of verse 4 that he holds them in derision which is sort of a tricky way of saying he mocks them. You see, because God sees what we do for what it is. And he mocks those who would try to run from him, who would try to escape him, who would try to raise their fists against him. He, he laughs. It's sort of like, imagine you have a four-year-old and a sandbox out back, and one morning the four-year-old at breakfast informs you that she is going to dig through the sandbox all the way to the other side of the earth. As parents, we, we, we know better than that's probably not going to happen today. We encourage them on and, and send them out the door, but, but we laugh. Not really to make fun of our children, not to mock them, not, not to deride them so much as simply to say to them, to say, we, we know how this is going to end. The Lord sees for what it is, and he is free to mock, not in a cruel way, but because these would stand against him in pride and in arrogance. And he says, I know how this is going to end for you, because I see what you can't see. But notice where verse 5 takes us. Part, the other part of his response, we read, is that he will speak to them in his wrath, and he will terrify them in his fury, saying, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. You see, it's appropriate the Lord, that the Lord would not only laugh at our attempts to fight for our own freedom from him, but that he would also respond in anger because he's the one who made us. He's the one who sustains us. He is he who's the one who holds every molecule in our being up on any given day, at any given moment. Even when we sin against him, we do so only because he allows us to do it, because he sustains the very breath in our lungs. And his response is anger. You see, what's happening is, the psalm begins with a question, and it's a question about a vision for freedom. A vision for freedom about we want to loose the bonds that bind us, right? Like that's a thing most of us probably get some, to some degree or another. Don't try to control me. Don't try to, to bind me in. Let me be who I want to be. And yet in the absolute sense, God rejects this vision for freedom because our, our vision of freedom is a freedom from. It begins with this freedom from what you can tell me to do and how to live my life. This is the condition of humanity. We're convinced that we need freedom from God. We're convinced that it's attainable for us. And so we fight and we shout and we work together. We organize our lives with structures and systems so that we don't need anybody else, right? We organize our lives in such ways so that no one can hurt us, especially God himself. And some of you have experienced harm at the hands of people who say they're doing what they're doing for God's sake. 
And that drives you to a place, and I don't want to belittle that this morning. But if you shake your fists at God, know that he understands that, and he penetrates your heart. And he sees more clearly than even what you have seen. Some of you are are deeply angry at God. And part of what I want you to hear me say this morning is, I want to at least name that for you this morning. Because you may not see it. Because you may see it simply as, I'm angry at my spouse. Or I'm angry at my kids or my boss or my neighbor or my coworker or anybody else in this world. But what God sees is, he ordered your life in that way so that those people are part of your life. He has ordered your life that way so that you might know him. And even as you shake your fist at him, his pursuit is of you. But know that he is your adversary. Notice as the psalmist continues how God responds, even at the end of verse 6, which I've already read a few times this morning. Verse 6, he says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. What's fascinating is that the nations rage and the people's plot. It's vocal, it's visible, it's, it's directed, it's intentional. And what's God's response? God's response is, look at my king. God's response is, I've set up my king. I know how this works. When we get to verses 7 through 9, we notice that the pronouns change a little bit. And actually, what we, what we assume and what is happening is, we're actually hearing the king speak now. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. You see, that what the king is, the, while the kings and the rulers are huddling up for counsel to make plans and to plot to, to set themselves free, the king himself says, I've heard the decree. I've heard what God has said publicly. And what God has said publicly is, I'm his son, and he's begotten me. He has put me in this place. My identity is in God himself. He's the son, and he's the king. And with this decree in the second part of this section, in verses 8 and 9, comes this great promise regarding the world and all that are in it. He says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a, with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. If you need the imagery, it's a flower pot with a hammer taken to it. It's not going to last. That's the promise of God to the king that he set on his hill. We respond with rage and with plans and with our great intentions and with our great insight into how we understand the world. And God says, look at my king and hear what I've promised to him. Because what I've promised to him is that the rule of this king, of my son, will know no boundaries. That the opposition to him will not stand. We get the picture, if you've seen The Lion King, you know in the beginning Mufasa's telling young Simba, they're sitting on Pride Rock and then looking at the Pride Land and all of its glory and all of its beauty. And the king tells his own son, this will all be yours one day, my son. That's the picture that we get in these verses. Is that God is telling his son, the king, this, is, this will all be yours. To the, to, the, to the very ends of the earth. Nothing will stand against your rule. Nothing will stand against your reign. What a promise that is. You see, not only is God rejecting our vision of freedom, 
But with our attempts to be free comes our version of, of ruling, which means we're going to rule ourselves. I want to be in charge of my life. I don't want anybody else to be in charge of my life. I want to be king, right? If I had it my way, traffic would pull aside on my way to work. If I had it my way, I could drive 120 to Kansas City and back to cut down the time. If I had it my way, fill in the blank, for your kids, for your spouse, for your roommate, for your professors, for your students. If I had it my way, I would be king. And this is the way that that kingship would work itself out. God says no. God says no matter what you think, your self-rule will not stand against me. And God rejects our self-rule. The trick is, though, we live like kings. Technology tells us that we can be in more than one place at a time, right? Our cars tell us that we can be wherever we need to go in a matter of minutes or hours at the very most. Our lives tell us that, uh, our lives tell us that we can flip on a screen and figure out what's going on around the world and that we can have authoritative opinions about what's going on around the world. So much in our lives tells us that we're already kings and queens and princes and princesses. And yet God rejects our self-rule because he says, look at my king, look at my king. Look at the last section of, these, of this psalm in verses 10 through 12. We see that really the completion as God gives specific direction. Again, the nature of the speaking changes a little bit because now he addresses those kings directly. The passage started out with a question in general to any who would listen. Why on earth would they do this? But beginning in verse 10, he addresses those who are fighting for their own freedom and for their self-rule. And he addresses them very specifically with this instruction. In verse 10, he says, Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. This is language that speaks of, think about the decisions you're about to make. They'll have consequences. Think and act carefully in accordance with what I'm telling you. There are better ways and there are worse ways, is what he says. And he speaks directly to the kings and the rulers who would listen. Be wise and be warned because you are not in charge. But then look at verse 11. In contradiction to our desire to serve ourselves and our own needs and our desire to live for ourselves, what does he say? He says in verse 11, he says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. He says, Serve and rejoice. As you serve, rejoice. Do so with utmost humility because you are not in charge. But he calls the kings, he calls the rulers, he calls those with power and influence and wealth and says, put yourself in a place of a servant. Very few men and women with the power that he's, that he's addressing here would ever see themselves as a servant of anyone. Because they've risen to the place that they've risen to because they've crushed everyone else. And they've made everyone else their servants. But the Lord speaks to them and says, serve and rejoice as you serve and then verse 12 completes the thought kiss the son remember the son is the king kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled blessed are all who take refuge in him the completed thought as we moved from freedom 
to self-rule, to love. Serve and rejoice. Love the one who is over you. Love in a costly way. Love is sacrifice. He's calling the rulers, the powerful, the wealthy, the manipulators, those who, who no one says no to. He says he's calling them to say, give yourselves to my son. Give yourselves to the king. For us, there's a place to hear those words as well. You may not consider yourself rich and powerful this morning, but chances are you have more power and more wealth than you realize. If nothing else, there's a place in this text for all of us to honestly ask, what does wisdom look like in my life? Where do I need to heed the warning that is here? And for some of you, probably most of us, we may not see the areas that we really need to see. And so we need to go to somebody else and say, what do you see in my life where I'm fighting for my own freedom and my own self-rule? And I'll tell you, that's going to be uncomfortable. You will not like the answer that you hear. Because you're going to go into that conversation thinking, oh, they're probably going to say this, 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 and this. And what's going to happen is the response you're going to get is, no, it's over here. Look at that. I don't want to look at that. Ask yourself, what does wisdom look like for you in this regard? As God challenges your independence, it will not be comfortable for you. But it's also a place for us to ask ourselves, to what am I giving myself? What am I serving? What am I devoting my time and my energies and my life to? And what is my attitude as I do it? You may be serving your family, your church. You may be serving your company well. And your attitude is full of anger and hatred and disdain for any one of those things. We may have no idea that that's happening inside of you. But I want you to ask yourself, not only what are you serving, but what's the attitude of your heart as you serve? And the last thing I want want you to consider is, is God your taskmaster? Or is he the one who calls you to a life of love? Because if we're fighting for freedom, if all we see is chains and bonds and cords that need to be broken and shattered so that we can fully be free and alive, you don't see the love of God for you. You only see him as a taskmaster. It may be marked by your own relationship with with your mom or your dad who was like that, and that's all you can see. But it's entirely possible that that's your view of God. Because if he loves you and if we see his love and know his love, why would we want to be free from that? Why would we want to rule ourselves instead of sit under his rule? But if that's your view, there's a place for us to wrestle with that together. Do you see the flow of the psalm? Freedom, rule, love. That's what he calls us to. He calls us to face the reality that we're fighting for our own freedom on our terms. He calls us to face the fact that we want to rule ourselves or at least be a part of the process of ruling ourselves. But at the end, he calls us to a life of love. Now, I want to be honest with you. Verses 10 through 12 are difficult to read. And what I mean by that is simply this. 
it kind of sounds like he's saying, you've got to love the one who's in charge, and if you don't love him, he's going to destroy you. And it kind of does say that. But in modern-day terms, we think of what we see on the news. You see, there's an old adage, a question in political thought. Is a ruler better to be feared or to be loved? If you're a fan of The Office, you know that Michael Scott's answer was, I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. But when we look around the news and we look about history, we think about dictators like Pol Pot and Idi Amin and Adolf Hitler. If you loved them and performed right, you were on their side and they may not destroy you today, but you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We think about dictators around the world and the way powerful rulers rule ruthlessly around the world and throughout history and we realize this may sound like that. As long as you love right, as long as you do right, as long as you behave, your life is spared for today. But his anger may turn in a moment. But if you hear nothing else this morning, hear me say that is not what's actually pictured in verses 10 through 12. How do I know that? I know that because these verses show up in other places in the Bible. You see, in Acts chapter 4, events occurring roughly a thousand years probably after these words were written, the followers of Jesus are gathered, and some of them have just gotten out of prison because they were preaching in the name of Jesus, and their very lives were threatened, and, the, and God's people are gathered in Acts 4, and they begin to pray. And what do they pray about having experienced loved ones being put in jail and their lives threatened? They pray these words. Because what they realize is the nation's rage and the people's plot against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Messiah, against his Christ, we realize is Jesus himself. You see, Psalm 2 is ultimately about Jesus. They understand not only their own experiences, but they understand that the events that they knew about Jesus being put to death, he was put to death because the nations raged against him. Because the peoples plotted, even those who said they knew God and knew his word, they plotted against him. And he took it. Because he said, my father is in charge, and nothing in this life happens to me apart from his will. And if this is his will for me to die at your hands, then so be it. Psalm 2 is really about Jesus being put to death and brought back to life. But then sometime later, a man named Paul is preaching about this Jesus who is, who is dead and risen again. And again, he quotes these very words. Because at the moment that Jesus rose from the dead, it was the declaration of verse 7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Not that that was when Jesus was first born, because we know that Jesus has existed from all eternity. But at that moment, God is making the public declaration that this is his king. That the one who lived, who died, and who rose again is seated on his throne. Sin has been defeated. Every injustice in this world has been defeated and conquered. Your inability to obey has been defeated. Your inability to get it right, to be the perfect parent, has been defeated. Your inability to avoid sin in your life has been defeated because the king is on his throne. Our human condition is that we're in conflict with God. 
But the hope we have is not that we can do enough and make the king happy. The hope that we have is that God sent his son as this king to die. In no other scenario do we have that. A dictator does not send his own son to die for his people so that they might love him. That's foolishness. He may murder his own son, but that's for other reasons. But he's not going to give his own son for the good of the people. But God himself says, kiss the son. He says, find refuge in me purely because I have given my son for you. I have given my most valued possession, if you will, so that my people might have life. And so when this psalm ends, we can read it with those eyes. And we can hear this promise that says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Here this morning, that call goes out to anyone. You're either an adversary with God or you're running to him. You're either running away from him or you're running towards him. The call of the gospel is that because Jesus lived, died, and rose again, because the Holy Spirit is real and is at work and active, because God is sovereign over all things, he calls us to take refuge in him and in him alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, by your grace, you take those who you call enemies and make them friends. You take those who are far away, who rage and who plot, and you calm their hearts and you give them new life. Father, as we struggle this morning, as we rejoice this morning, wherever we are this morning, help us to see you. Help us to know what it is to run away from our dreams of our own freedom to run away from dreams of self-rule and to run into your arms to find your grace, to find hope, to find eternity. In your name, Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen.